Asia Pacific Currents. News and labour issues from the Asia Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at 9 o'clock. On Community Radio 3CR. Workers of the world should unite to fight this greedy capitalist. Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links. Good morning and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents. I'm Giselle Hanna and I'm taking you through to 9.30 this morning. It is Saturday the 19th of August here on Community Radio 3CR. Very action-filled show today. I've got a long speech that I'm going to play in the second half. It's Clifton Di Rosario. He also spoke at the Eco-Socialism Conference held by Socialist Alliance in Uh, early July. He's an elected leader of the Communist Party of India and what he's going to be talking about is fascism in India, specifically the Modi government. But in order to get to that speech and play as much of it as I want to, I need to get to the news immediately and try and get through this quickly. Uh, So now time for news from around the region. And we're going to start in Australia, where the death of the Australian gig economy worker highlights safety issues. The death of another gig economy worker last Saturday night has highlighted the ongoing safety issues faced by delivery drivers in Australia. Most gig economy workers earn less than half of the minimum wage and are pressured to take on more work to make ends meet, leading to more hours on the road, driver fatigue and taking risks to meet their deadlines. The Transport Workers Union have been lobbying for industry reforms to be legislated by the federal government with fair pay and workers' compensation being key areas that need to be addressed. The TWU estimates that 13 gig economy workers have died in recent years, mostly due to collisions on the road. A worrying trend is a rise in assaults of gig economy workers, most of whom are migrants, with one worker murdered so far this year, while several others have been having been bashed. In addition to safety, these workers also lack rights to sick leave and protection from unfair dismissal. Moving to Pakistan, the All-Pakistan Wapda Hydroelectric Workers Union, abbreviated to CBA, has vowed to oppose a plan by the government to privatise a country's already struggling energy sector. The CBA noted that electricity prices were already unaffordable for most poor Pakistanis due to the government instituting IMF requirements and efforts to privatise the industry would only hurt people more. The CBA has also complained about the general treatment of workers with more than 80,000 vacancies in the sector. Most employees are required to handle to work, uh, handle to workload of several people. The union said privatisation would not only continue this practice of understaffing, but also would mean a cut in financial benefits for most workers, as outlined in secret negotiations between the government and potential buyers. Workers in the energy sector already face huge challenges as widespread systemic corruption means that politicians and the wealthy often treat the employees as feudal subjects. The government claims the deal is a public-private partnership. And moving now to Armenia, the Confederation of Trade Unions of Armenia has issued a statement on the impending genocide in the the Nagorno-Karabakh region, a historically Armenian-populated enclave in the recognised borders of Azerbaijan. 
The Azerbaijani army has blockaded the mountainous region since December 12, preventing food, medical supplies and disrupting heating in an attempt to force a local population to recognise Baku's sovereignty over the area. Armenia and Azerbaijan have fought two bitter wars for the region since the collapse of the USSR. Armenia emerged victorious in the first war in the 1990s when Nagorno-Karabakh declared itself an independent state. In 2020, Azerbaijan won back most of the territory they had lost and have put pressure on the remaining 120,000 Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh to give up their calls for independence. Already, local people have begun to die of malnutrition due to the blockade, and several people evacuated by the Red Cross have been seized by Azerbaijani forces and charged with high treason. Armenian trade unions have called on the international community, including the UN, to take action against Azerbaijan for the blockade. And protests in Indonesia have delayed domestic workers' laws. Protesters have been holding down, holding dawn-to-dusk fast outside Parliament in Jakarta to protest the ongoing delays in passing a domestic workers' bill. Indonesia is believed to have the largest domestic worker population in the world, estimated at more than 4.2 million people. And a bill has been in the making for at least 20 years. An attempt to pass the bill failed in 2020, largely because many of the lawmakers are among the biggest employers of domestic workers. But President Joko Widodo has been pushing for the bill to be passed this year in the lead up to the ne- to next year's elections. While the bill guarantees a protection of workers from abuse and mistreatment, many critics believe it does not go far enough. Unions are not covered by the law and the bill only covers workers employed through an agency, meaning that those employed directly by a household, half of Indonesia's domestic workers, are not protected at all. And in China, recent flooding caused by Typhoon Doksuri, the costliest typhoon on record in China, has wreaked havoc on workplaces in affected areas. The heavy rainfall that accompanied the typhoon in late July turned into flooding by early August, which hit the capital, Beijing, and killed at least 33 people. Among the dead were several civil servants not normally involved in rescue work who died while trying to rescue other others from floodwaters and damaged buildings. Sanitation workers who are responsible for clearing drains in China found that their workload not only increased but became more dangerous as several were drowned in the course of their duties. A number of truck drivers also died when bridges collapsed or were swept away by floodwater or died in collisions caused by the conditions. Several other workers became trapped in buildings and construction sites. The injuries and deaths highlight the vulnerability of many workers who are required to work in dangerous weather to make a living. And our final story from Bangladesh. This week, Bangladesh experienced more violent protests following the death of a high-profile Islamist leader in prison. 83-year-old Delwa Husseini Saidi was a senior member of Bangladesh's main Islamist party, Jamaat Islami, serving once as the country's vice president. His party opposed independence from Pakistan in the 1971 War of Independence and Saidi's 2013 conviction of murder, rape and arson against the Hindu minority during the war was seen as politi- a political show trial by his supporters. Originally sentenced to death, he was commuted to life in prison upon appeal. 
Following his death this week of natural causes, his supporters, many of them students, took to the streets to protest. The crowd turned on journalists after a reporter mentioned the Sheikh's convictions in a live broadcast, severely beating and robbing five journalists, including the reporter and his cameraman. Bangladesh is one of the most dangerous places for journalists in Asia, with several being attacked and killed in the past year. The pressure stems from government as well as opposition, with the Digital Security Act announced in June being widely seen as aimed at suppressing critics. And our feature story today, though in India, um, links to this idea of these mass protests for right-wing ideology. I'm going to uh, just pay a quick station announcement and then our feature for the morning. to me, lover, I've secrets to tell. Hi, we're Dash. And you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Come to me sweetly, this love of great so Clifton Di Rosario is an elected leader of the Communist Party of India, Marxist-Leninist Liberation. He spoke at the Eco-Socialism Conference about the fight to save democracy in India in response to the increasingly autocratic Modi government. He starts his speech, which I'm not going to include here for you, about um, some theory of uh, fascism. Um, but I'm gonna, we're going to pick this up when he's talking about Georgi Dimitrov's speech um, to the 7th Congress uh, of the Comintern. So we'll just go straight to that. And I picked it up 10 minutes in so we get the crux of the situation in India. And of course, he, he writes this entire thesis uh, uh, which is presented at the 7th and last Congress of the Comintern in 1935. So what Dimitrov says, he defines the fascist state as an open terrorist dictatorship of the most imperialist, most reactionary, an ultra-nationalist section of finance capital. The report warned, uh, warned the communist movement against making the mis- uh, making, uh, again mistaking the coming to power of a fascist regime as a standard succession of one bourgeois government by another and also against ignoring the rise of fascist ideas and forces within the bourgeois democratic setup. But the thing with uh, Dimitra's report is it deals with fascism at that very early stage, in the 1930s. Hitler's just come to power, is, is, it's still evolving the kind of you know things that he's doing the final solution happens more than you know more than seven eight years later the kind of legislative changes that happen the Nuremberg laws come post 35 so Dimitrov doesn't have that to in, in his hand and he's unable to see that and what he also fails to assess is the aggressive mobilization and the movement of the masses of course you know um, after the world war ii uh, fascism gets totally discredited and it kind of, in that sense, you know, you, you, you don't see it anywhere for, for some time. But we now say that it's making a re-emergence in the global setup and definitely in India. Now, I, this is just as a background. Now, coming to India, I, just to give you a small, I mean, India got independence in 1947. And at that point in time, uh, the, the question was, what, what now? And so India adopted the constitution. Uh, which is very, I, I would imagine, in terms of uh, the state, it's quite similar. There's a federal, it's a federal structure. So you have a union government, state government, separation of powers, uh, independent judiciary, so on and so forth. So that's the kind of notion that India adopts. But the preamble, which I think, you know, is an extremely important part of the constitution to read, and in which uh, Dr. B.R. Ambedkar, who is this great um, uh, constitutional lawyer, fighter for the rights of, uh, of the subjugated caste, 
he actually, uh, it's his big contribution. He talks about justice, liberty, equality, and fraternity. So these four are the, uh, in that sense, the foundational values of, of the Indian state. Now that, those foundational values, those very foundational values, are what are being called into question, or what are being dismantled at this point in time. Uh, when you talk about India, uh, the one thing that you cannot miss, and which is why I said at the beginning, this is not about one person. So today if we are saying India has reached a particular stage where there's an assault on the constitution, so on and so forth, it's because of an organization called the RSS, the Rashtriya Swayamsek Dal, it would be um, National Volunteer uh, Association. This organization was formed in 1925. In 1925, representatives of this organization went all the way to Italy, to Rome, to meet Mussolini, to have a look at, you know, what is it that you're doing over there. So they, were, so they weren't just inspired hearing about it. They were deeply engaged in the kind of fascist uh, politics that was emerging in Europe at that point. And which is, so you see at that point, there's several things, I, mean, I won't go into details over there. Rest assured that the RSS was very, very influenced by Hitler's fascism as also uh, Nazism. And it, what is the concept that the RSS has? As Sam said, uh, the, the RSS uh, didn't take that much of a part in the freedom struggle. They didn't believe that the British was the main enemy. Because their idea was, the entire idea was different. It was like, ours is an Hindu, cult, Hindu culture, we have to protect the Hindu culture. We have to, this is a Hindu nation. So the Muslims, the Christians, I mean, you know, whatever, they're, they're there and if they want to be there, they can, you know, we'll be paternalistic towards them. But we're not going to talk about any kind of equality. So the idea of India itself was completely different. It was totally against what the constitution had. But this organization at that time didn't have the wherewithal to make any kind of an impact on where the country was going at the time of independence. But 100 years later, you see the effect of their work over the last century. Now coming to, uh, and this is what you know, we, we consistently say that there is an ideological and organizational continuity to the fascist project in India. So you have this one organization and this one organization is not just one office in one city. This is an organization which has an entire, it's called the Sangh Parivar, what would you call that? The, it has an entire family of organizations. So you want a student's organization, they have a student's organization that was formed in the 1950s. It's one of the biggest student organizations in India. You want a trade union, they have a trade union that was formed in the 1950s. It's one of the biggest trade unions in India. They have an organization for women. They have an organization for indigenous communities. They have an organization for suppressed castes. They have an organization even for Swamiji's, the religious leaders. They have an organization for women religious leaders as well. So they have an organization for every section of society. And they have, an, they have a slew of, uh, of these welfare kind of institutions, schools, hostels, that kind of a thing. So for the last hundred years, this is what they've been doing. Even though they weren't able to capture political power, they have worked in society, among every section of society, building a consensus for the idea of an India that is not equal, for an India where minorities don't have equal space, for an India where caste will continue to be perpetrated, and an India where patriarchy is not going to be questioned. So that's that imagination of a Hindu Rashtra. They have normalized that in a large section of society. If one were to understand you know, this, these features of what we are calling this Indian fascism, 
this organization in ideological continuity is something that you cannot bear so i was also talking to my friend uh, kokila from uh, singapore you know how does one make sense you know how does one say that uh, you know singapore is not fascist but it's authoritarian and i think for me the way i'd look at it is that of course it's authoritarian it's totalitarian also maybe sometimes you know but the fact is that you don't uh, there is no this kind of an organization that has this imagination for a completely different nation that is working on the ground that is spreading a consensus it has this army of lakhs of cadre that is going from village to village household to household whose only job is to just say the hey we are not an equal country you know all these people who are here this you have to explain what a lakh is oh a lakh <laughs> Hundred thousand, yeah. Okay, it's many. It's like it's really a lot of people. You can just look at it that way. And I realized this. I mean, I, I came into Australia and there were no people. So I asked them, you know, is something wrong? There's no people because I think there's some twenty-five million, right? The population, our population is some one point four billion. So the scale is it's, it's the scale is incredible. So if you can, you know, if you imagine the length and breadth of that country. you have this organization over the last 100 years which has worked and it's worked in a very committed way you'll have to you know obviously it's worked hard which is why you know we will come to this i think uh, the second aspect uh, which is really troubling at this point in time is the very is this authoritarian nature itself of this government so you basically have a highly centralized form of government but the decisions are not being made in parliament the decisions are not being made by the other political parties there's very little space that you have to you know to try and influence that the decisions are made in the offices of the rss so they are saying what needs to be done they are saying what policies have to be done of course there's this entire side of crony capitalism and neoliberalism and you have and you know these bunch of five uh, house you know companies uh, company houses that are really uh, you know ruling the roost at this point in time there is that i'm not saying that you know it's all just rss but in terms of these fundamental policies that are defining the soul of this country those decisions are being made by this particular organization you also have a very centralized and autocratic form of government with executive power being primarily in the hands of modi and shah Mo amit shah is the home, home minister the separation of powers among the executive legislature and judiciary and between the center and the states that is central to the constitutional foundation of our republic are continuously undermined with the modi regime approaching on uh, encroaching on the powers of the states and progressively undermining the independence of judiciary the resemblance to an authoritarian state is unmistakable even as individual freedoms and rights are sought to be substituted by duties digital technologies facilitate a massive expand expansion of surveillance and are used to frame and falsely incriminate dissenters and human rights defenders as well as to exclude the poor and the marginalized from access to resources indian fascism crucially seeks to control regulate and determine all aspects of society politics econ economy culture while exercising control over people's private lives as well and here i think the crucial part for us is that you know in india you have this brahmanical and patriarchal caste system i'm not going to delve into that i'm just assuming that you know you you, you know some uh, you have some idea of it but that form of regulation of society where you caste system regulates a person's every decision in that sense whether it's personal or public who you interact with who you don't interact with who you eat with who you don't eat with who you can have a relationship with who you can't where you can sit where you can stand what work you can do what work you cannot do where you can build your house where you can't build your house you know 
that's the kind of a regulation that we already have and uh, uh, if you look at what uh, if you look at the kind of totalitarian kind of a regime that's what it wants it wants to control every single thing you do every decision of yours but for india the template has already been set this brahmanical and extremely patriarchal kind of class system caste system has already set the template so it's all the more easy now for that kind of a control to be exercised in 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 our country this is now accentuated by the iron grip that the modi regime exercises over in, uh, over institutions that shape public opinion particularly the media which has been transformed into into a veritable lapdog media network inspired by mussolini the rss aims to mobilize the entire population towards the goals and interests for which it has a plethora of organizations trade unions student organization women organization adivasi uh, indigenous people organization and scores of other organizations the modi regime aims to hold all out democracy to the extent that the state is the supreme authority and the individuals only serve the interests it lays down today significant emphasis is placed on nationalism or rather the hindu supremacist defining of hindu nationalism uh, in this i mean basically hindu is equal to indian is equal to india so if you're a minority no way you can prove your patriotism i'm i'm unfortunately born into a christian family i i don't believe in god but i know when i go back from here there's the what i'm going to be called is a rice rice bag convert communist so rice bag convert basically is the derogatory term for christians that you became christian in india because you were given a rice bag and that's why you got converted so i'll be a rice bag convert not a christian not practicing but still a rice bag convert and of course i'm a communist so that's like a double whammy so this nationalism so if you're a communist and then if you belong to the minorities you cannot love india you cannot be you know patriotic you cannot be a nation loving person it's just beyond you because this is not your motherland and your holy land your holy land is in rome you may have been born here but you'll probably go to rome to the vatican you know that's where you <laughs> or you go to makka so so this for this reason you know one can so the nationalism has been defined in this manner and it's it's a shrill nationalism i am just you know saying it out in a little bit of a jocular way but it is incredible the the kind of slogans that are shouted at you if you were to do are religious slogans now there's been a entire weaponization of even religious slogans uh, in in the nation Uh, fascism in an ex colony which continues to subject to imp- imperialist plunder inevitably has different characteristics from the fascism of imperialist countries in particular the people are plundered by global capital and homegrown uh, billionaire capitalists who have got, who have de- become deeply integrated with imperialism modi of course has taken this to a completely different plane in terms of this neoliberal uh, kind of an aggression and i think uh, my fellow speakers also going to talk a bit about what's happening especially in central india among the indigenous communities but basically what we're seeing is this a uh, concerted assault on the working class a sale of all public assets public sectors uh, laws have been brought in now for workers which basically undo 150 years of gains of the working class which includes minimum wages job security social security and the 8 hour working day so each of the, the of course those labor codes have been passed in parliament but by the sheer struggle of the working class they have not yet influ- been able to bring it into force but the moment the workers become weaker by this entire division it is obvious that that's what they're going to do a fascism whips up mass frenzy against perceived internal enemies 
were projected as threats to the state, nation, civilization, culture, and even notions of public order and public health. To do this, it simultaneously drums up feelings of victimhood and injury and claims of pride and supremacy. The othering of religious minorities as the internal enemy is a constitutive aspect of Indian fascism. In the Indian context, uh, the internal enemies are the Muslims, the Christians, and going by the RSS textbook, the communists. Now, it, that, there is this book called Bunch of Thoughts by Golwalkar. He's one of the RSS kind of the, the Guruji. So he writes the three internal enemies of India are the Christians, the Muslims, and the communists. Which I said, you know, it's a, if you're a Muslim and you're a communist, it's really... And if you're Muslim, communist, and you're queer, or Christian and queer, then it's, you know, it just keeps increasing the kind of... And there's also an alarming normalization of the privatization and outsourcing of violence against Muslims and Dalits to, an extra, to, to extrajudicial vigilante squads that has taken place. This is something that you've been seeing, lynchings, barging into people's houses. It's just become you know, something that it's not too disturbing anymore. The Sangh, the Sangh BJP Brigade pursues an elaborate strategy of, to manufacture consent around this combination of fear and hate, victimhood and supremacy. Like any populist, Modi has from the very beginning marketed himself as an anti-establishment crusader, invoking the sense of outrage among large, large sections of people against the miserable conditions of existence worsened by deprivation and, uh, and oppression. He has very cleverly managed to associate all the ills of the status quo with the prolonged Congress rule, the previous party in India, equating it further with corruption and dynastic politics. He calls for a Congress Mukt Bharat. In fact, BJP's call now is that Congress is the other party, the other major party. They want a Congress-free India. The Home Minister has gone a step free saying that we want an opposition-free India. That's the, that's the kind of parliamentary democratic, the, the democracy that they want to uh, engage in. The mobilization of masses through a concerted method of creating public con consensus for this divisive, hate-filled fascist project extends even to the diaspora with cheers for Modi on his trips abroad. I, this, I think I'll talk about this if anyone's interested on how the diaspora has been mobilized to, I think, 18,000 people in Sydney to try and you know, say that you know, such a great man has come here. The BJP also targets the constitution the institutional framework of modern India and the core constitutional values of justice, liberty, equality and fraternity and the basic structure of the constitution. Indian fascism also draws its strength from the colonial legacy of India's model of governance and the weakness of India's democratic institutions and culture which the prolonged rule of the Congress prior to the BJP spectacular rise failed to address. Rule of law has been replaced with rule by law. At the time of adoption of the constitution, the RSS openly advocated Manusmriti, which is a Hindu scripture, as India's ideal constitution. Savarkar has described it as a book which, for centuries, has codified the spiritual and divine march of our nation. Now in power, the, uh, this uh, RSS-BJP establishment is chipping away at the constitution to convert it into a new Manusmriti. As happening relent uh, also happening relentlessly is the encoding of Hindutva into the law. We all remember in uh, Nazi Germany, the Nuremberg Laws, where uh, the disenfranchisement of Jews, etc., that happened. You find a very similar kind of thing where state laws, central laws, and a certain uh, executive directions and administrative measures are being taken to actually criminalize certain aspects of, of livelihood, of existence, of the minorities. Um, there are struggles, I think you've seen the anti-CA struggles, and I, I think there were struggles that happened over here, where for the first time, your citizenship was 
that was tried to be tied to the uh, to your religion that's something that that didn't happen as such it is clear and uh, clear and there is a clear and sharp contrast to this business as usual approach but as treating the bjp just as another party of the ruling classes ruling at the center and in some states and functioning as an opposition party in other states we have identified the modi regime as a fascist regime and call for an all out resistance to this growing fascist offense and its consolidation indeed saving india from this fascist disaster and destruction is the most urgent challenge before revolutionary communist today this is of course calls for the broadest possible unity and and cooperation among all democratic forces and ideological means in india this this unity has come to be popularly expressed as defense of the constitution and the legacy of the freedom movement and saving the country and its resources and infrastructure from outright corporate takeover powerful move, uh, movements have emerged in defense of the constitution and against privatization which reflect an unprecedented scale of unity and resolve as witnessed in the movement against the citizenship amendment act and most strikingly in the historic farmers movement against the modi government modi government's bid to promote corporate takeover of india's agrarian economy revolutionary communists will have to intensify resistance on all fronts even though the bjp today is the most predominant party in the present phase it is certainly not electorally invincible or irresistible as has been seen in few states the forging of a dynamic and determined united opposition on all india level and a major and major states would be crucial to weaken the bjp and oust the modi regime in the upcoming electoral battle but lastly defeating fascism is not going to happen through a ballot paper Uh, defeating fascism is going to happen on the streets it's a battle that will be fought over the minds and hearts of lakhs and uh, not lakhs okay. <laughs> hundreds of thousands hundreds of thousands of uh, people and i think that's the task that that you know people who genuinely love the country have before them and that task is what they've taken for themselves thank you and that is all we've got time for <clears throat> on the program today. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, we'll be back next Saturday with more news and current affairs from the Asia-Pacific region. Of course, that was Clifton Di Rosario. He's an elected um, communist in India speaking about fascism and the Modi government. Coming up now is Palestine Remembered.